Welcome to the Nagorno-Karabakh Nod, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. and this is the Nagorno-Karabakh Nord podcast. Here, we examine the roots of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, its impact on the Armenian and Azerbaijani societies, and the larger region. We'll also be looking at possible ways of resolving this conflict. And my guest today is Olesia Vartanian. She's a senior analyst for the South Caucasus region with the Crisis Group. Her research focuses on regional security issues in Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan, and her particular focus is on breakaway regions in the South Caucasus, Abkhazia, Nagorno-Karabakh, and South Ossetia. And we reach her in Yerevan, Armenia. Olesia Vartanian, welcome to Radio Canada International. Hello. Before we talk about the current situation in Armenia and in Nagorno-Karabakh, can you give us a brief overview of the origins of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict? Well, this is the oldest conflict in this post-Soviet space. Um, uh, the turbulence started uh, even before the collapse of the Soviet Union in late 80s uh, with, uh, with uh, the our ethnic Armenian population in Nagorno-Karabakh demanding the transfer of the region from Azerbaijan to Armenia. Um, again, that was still the Soviet times. and. Um, that actually provoked some developments uh, with uh, tensions, uh, not necessarily in Nagorno-Karabakh itself, first it was where some uh, big t- towns uh, um, in Azerbaijan, and I mean Baku, Sumgayet, and some other places, uh, now they, some of them even have different names, and uh, that actually led to the um, to some pogroms and people leaving uh, the places. And uh, when the Soviet Union, with late Soviet uh, rulers, they were making attempts to somehow pacify the situation. Uh, they, in fact, what happened is that they they did even even worse, and uh, that turned uh, the conflict into a um, into a violent. Um, operations uh, in, in uh, inside Nagorno-Karabakh and also near the region. And uh, um, and when Armenia and Azerbaijan became independent states, basically what they, the first thing that <laughs> that they faced, it was the war. Uh, Azerbaijan started the war and that lasted for two years. That was the bloodiest war in the South Caucasus. And uh, for a long time, it was actually the bloodiest war in, the, in this whole post-Soviet space. Um, they uh, finished that war with a ceasefire, with Armenians taking control of Nagorno-Karabakh itself and also seven adjacent territories. Uh, all ethnic Azerbaijanis left. 
that area and um, similar to ethnic Armenians who left uh, Azerbaijani controlled uh, towns, cities and regions uh, and also ethnic Azerbaijanis left Armenia. So that was um, the, the end of the war. There was uh, very little communication between these two um, ethnicities, two populations um, in, in this uh, more than two decades. And there were a number of attempts to um, to propose and sometimes even impose um, peace plans on these two nations. All of them unfortunately failed. Um, and you know how it happens when you basically do not speak to each other, when diplomacy fails, then there is a bigger possibility for the war. And unfortunately, this is what, uh, what we have been seeing in, in the recent weeks. Hmm. There was a ceasefire, a Russian brokered ceasefire that was signed in 1994 that kind of posed you know the the, the hostilities or the the active phase of the war but uh, the two societies uh, in Armenia in Azerbaijan and in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, were deeply deeply impacted by this war can you talk about this impact on the societies in uh, in in Ar- Armenia in Azerbaijan and in Nagorno-Karabakh itself well, you know, I had to grow up uh, uh, with kind of hearing all the stories about the war and uh, with all this impact because I am kind of the first uh, post-war generation, I would say. Um, although I never lived in, inside Nagorno-Karabakh, but still, you know, with this kind of something that you hear. I remember being a kid and uh, hearing my um, my grandmother almost whispering, you know, um, talking to my niece about uh, the developments uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. So we all had to kind of um, internalize it a bit. Um, and I think uh, one of the main things that uh, any outside li- listener would uh, need to understand is that both Armenia and Azerbaijan, they emerged or re-emerged as independent states around this conflict. So all their state institutions and even identities, I would say, they were built around this conflict and about these confrontational lines that the both societies were taking. Um, to put it in a very kind of easy way, uh, all the institutions, you know, all the bureaucracy in both Armenia and Azerbaijan, they are reflecting the consequences and and. Um, and also with the uh, fact that this uh, conflict has been around for such a long time. So uh, when you live uh, in Armenia or in Azerbaijan, you may ne- not even notice how much it is interlinked you know, with, uh, with the conflict. Um, Azerbaijan basically has built the whole identity, a new identity of the nation around the conflict. And one can see it even in the architecture of modern architecture of Baku. And I would say it is the same, uh, but not uh, not the same, but similar. There are kind of similar patterns in the Armenian society as well. Mm, It is, uh, you can see, uh, when even walking in the central streets in Armenia, you can see, uh, you know, like, some signs that tell you that here um, a boy who, for example, was in the military service, he died and he lived in, in, this, ha- in this house. So it's kind of uh, all around you know, and you cannot really escape with war and the conflict. And uh, no matter um, how old you are and uh, whether you are the first post-war generation or you took part in the war or you were just born. Mm. And I, I'm afraid that this is going to stay this way for quite a long time. 
we'll we'll talk about that uh, later. But I I wanted to circle back to this uh, latest war that erupted on uh, September twenty seventh. Uh, do you? Uh, I know that a crisis group had talked uh, at length about. Uh, the possibility of uh, this conflict reigniting, uh, warning uh, that were fell on deaf ears. Uh, do you, uh, as as an analyst who's looked at this conflict, do you uh, understand why it happened now? Well, I think the word was definitely coming for a number of years. Um, look. Uh, there, there is one very important thing about peace proposals. When they uh, they either succeed or they fail, and both of these have certain significant consequences for the conflict. When they succeed, then we see certain developments. Sometimes, um, not both sides or all the sides reach the, their goals. But uh, in in this particular case, the Lavrov plan that was proposed in late 2015, it was a a, a very significant failure. Um, because what what it, it actually brought to both, I would say, and to the region first of all, is that um, first uh, an, an increasing frustration in the peace process, um, especially in, uh, in Azerbaijan. They they started thinking that there is no potential for the peace, and the only option is the war. They, all the views have radicalized significantly, and especially after this brief escalation in 2016, which was kind of the largest and most important thing uh, since um, the mid-90s, uh, since the end of the war, um, to the first war, now we can say. Renewed fighting between Azerbaijan and Armenia is now in its second day. More than 50 people are dead, 300 others are wounded. Both countries are former Soviet republics that fought each other in the 1990s. The Kremlin is calling for an immediate ceasefire and a diplomatic solution, saying the fighting is a serious concern. The clash is over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. It's inside Azerbaijan, but run by Armenians. The region is also an important corridor for pipelines carrying oil and gas to world markets. Um, and and for sure, you know, what also contributed to this kind of uh, emergence or re-emergence of uh, potential violence is uh, the lack of international attention, you know, and um, it, it has been very obvious. I think many could feel it during the days of the war when they suddenly realized that Many people can, you know, release statements of concern, but uh, there are very few who would really kind of step in, you know, try to exercise certain pressure. And I'm not talking about the violence, but actually even diplomatic interventions. And uh, you are basically left on your own uh, in, in many cases, no matter what, what's happening on the ground. Um, but this has been this kind of situation has been around for a number of years now, um, and uh, basically, you know, much of the things were left in the hands of Moscow. Um, and even though, in, sometimes Moscow really did not want even to take the whole responsibility. So I would say that actually, this uh, this conflict was definitely coming, and one of the main things that contributed to it is the failure um, of the Lavrov plan, and. Um, the latest peace plan uh, that was uh, on the table, and uh, just lack of any kind of uh, space uh, here in the region um, to 
try to find kind of, you know, smart ways, smart formulas, or reset the process, start everything from the beginning, or finding new ways. No one really wanted to do that. Um, and, and as I said, the lack of international attention, really, we did not really kind of have, um, let's say, Trump, you know, jumping in and saying, look, here is a new formula. I want you to, to work along those lines. There was nothing like that. Can you talk about the Lavrov plan? This was the last uh, significant peace plan that was presented over uh, what, 26 years of negotiations, or? No, not really, not really. No? No, uh, well, you know, the funniest thing about this Lavrov plan is that till very recent, I mean, till this uh, weeks of the war, no one really wanted even to um, to say it officially that it exists. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it was never put on the paper and published, let's say, on the, on the web page of the foreign ministry or even kind of some state-run uh, think tanks in Russia. And uh, at the same time, um, Look, I mean, we are field-based organizations, so we go and speak to people, we speak to officials, and this is how we build our analysis. So it was kind of very easy for us to learn that something was definitely being discussed for 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 some time now. Mm -hmm. uh, Lavrov plan um, is uh, the the most um, I, I would say the worst <laughs> peace plan that was has ever been in the context of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflicts. And I would say, I would explain why. Um, all the peace processes, all, all the peace plans uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, conflict, they are founded on three main topics. So one of them is a return of territories, which are with seven territories uh, adjacent to Nagorno-Karabakh, which uh, used to be under the Armenian control. Um, Till very recently, since the beginning, uh, since the mid of 90s, the second topic is about status of Nagorno-Karabakh itself. So it's uh, whether it's going to be autonomy or independent or part of Armenia. And the third topic is about security provisions. Basically, you know how to monitor the implementation, how to enforce peace if needed. Um, Many people is associated with uh, peacekeepers, those who have uh, guns rather than even civilian civilians. So what mm, all the peace plans uh, since uh, the mid 90s, all of them included these elements. Just some of them had more detail there, and mm, especially those uh, in late uh, 90s, um, they were much more developed because they were actually di discussing even potential for what kind of documents people would have, uh, um, how their bureaucracy would operate. So something that can give you a kind of better idea what, what your life would look like if you are if you are to live in to continue living in this conflict zone or if you are to return there um, while being uh, a displaced person um, the Lavrov plan uh, basically took with three elements and said that um, five territories go back and two territories go back but uh, back to Azerbaijan direct control but two go back but a bit later uh, Russians deployed their military peacekeepers on the ground. And the first thing that there will be no provisions for the status for the moment. So, I mean, Nagorno-Karabakh will stay uh, somehow, you know, in a certain form. 
Baku accepted it. And even more, Baku was happy um, about the plan. The only thing that they were a bit concerned about is uh, with Russian peacekeepers, but actually the plan proposed so many good things to them I mean, along the line that they wanted, that even that was something that they were ready to close their eyes to. Um, and Yerevan, um, so it was in 2015, so um, and uh, President Sersakian, um, he demanded more clarity on status. And then, the, then the whole thing was blocked. Baku could never believe that uh, Russia, with all its influence and dependence of Armenia on Russia, I mean, in security, um, politics, economics, that Russia could not make Armenia, you know, accept the plan. And that provoked enormous frustration in Baku, enormous. And, um, um, and uh, that then with Armenian revolution happened and uh, that kind of, you know, delayed, I would say, the war. Um, unfortunately, when Nikol Pashinyan, the prime minister of Armenia came to power, I'm afraid uh, he had a very good chance um, to kind of, you know, to propose a certain reset. Becoming prime minister of Armenia, I proposed a new formula for peace. And uh, the, uh, the formula is following. Any solution of Nagorno-Karabakh conflict should be acceptable for people of Armenia, for people of Nagorno-Karabakh, and for people of Azerbaijan. I, I'm sure he had very little space uh, based on my interviews uh, from that time. But still, you know, war is a very expensive thing and it's a risky thing. And uh, there was, a, I, I believe there was a possibility to find a way to agree on certain things to at least not to get such a brutal and huge war uh, as what we have just recently witnessed. What were some of the outlines that you think were possible uh, prior to uh, September 27th? What, what would have been uh, diplomatically possible uh, and acceptable in Armenia and possible and acceptable in Azerbaijan to continue this negotiation process? Look, uh, the space was extremely small. And you know, the main reason why that space was so small is because everyone was still thinking along with all set up, you know, from the 90s, territory status and security. And you rather accept what I say, um, or there will be no deal altogether. Um, in this more than two decades, realities have been changing, including on the ground inside Nagorno-Karabakh itself. These territories have been becoming not only with security zone, they were also the places where uh, quite a number of uh, thousands of people have been living, you know, and these were not just like uh, those who were forced to settle there, um, majority of them were refugees from Azerbaijan itself uh, who had to settle on, on certain places, um, in, in these places. Um, when it comes to status, there was never a single plan proposed ba ba from Baku, you know, by Baku. Baku never made it clear what, for example, with Nagorno-Karabakh autonomy or cultural autonomy or whatever they, they can say, or what it would look like, I mean, who will be the police, uh, will they have their own courts or they will actually have to go to the Azerbaijani courts, 
will they have uh, the ability to learn and teach in Armenian language? Uh, how the local authorities will be elected? Will they have their own flag? Will they have their currency? Or they will have to switch to the Azerbaijani things? You know, something that can actually expand the conversation and the reasons where you can find, uh, not necessarily you will agree on 100%, but you can find some certain uh, common ground when you can, mm, interest would not be met on 100% again, yeah, but you can find uh, actually some uh, some space there that can contribute to um, to building some certain opinions. And, and of course, uh, that would require some time, resources, patient, political investment into this. But uh, by doing that, you actually build a peace rather than um, getting into the region of war. And, and the same about peacekeeping. Unfortunately, you know, when I, I've been going for some documents uh, of the OIC, all of them are secret still, but you know, I mean, certain secret things still get leaked. Um, and uh, all the peacekeeping plans, they were from the mid 90s. I mean, since mid 90s, so many things have changed, you know, new military technology, no drones are mentioned in these plans, as you can imagine. So, I mean, um, instead of it, just see, uh, you know, waiting for the for Russia, or any other nation to deploy their military contingent there, maybe there was actually, um, it was better to start thinking about what this uh, peacekeeping could look like and maybe actually what our interviews were showing back then. Um, and we published the report in December 2019. We spent two years talking to people in Baku, Yerevan, and Stepanakert about this. And they were saying that they don't want military presence, foreign military presence on the ground. They would rather have a civilian mission that can contribute, uh, you know, to certain processes. So I would say that, of course, the space was extremely small and appetites uh, were already very huge, you know. Uh, positions were radicalized, but still, especially with uh, with enormous popularity of Nikol Pashinyan when he came to power, there was a possibility to reset, to propose uh, a, a change to the content, um, not a replacement of the agenda, but actually starting talking about the content of the issues rather than just kind of uh, having them as demands and positions. When you say change as a content, a talk about the content, what do you mean? Uh, what what are some of the examples that you can give? Well, as I said, like for example, about the status, uh, maybe instead of actually demanding uh, independence, um, instead uh, there was uh, it was uh, smarter to uh, start discussing uh, what with independence means. You know, I mean, what, how the local bureaucracy can function, how with police, educational sector, how to regulate the local life, is what I mean. Mm. Now, uh, on November uh, the 9th, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan and Russia signed a declaration of secession of hostilities that uh, triggered a huge political crisis in, in Armenia. Today, 9 
what can you tell us about this document and what does it mean for the situation on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Armenia and Azerbaijan? I think many people have uh, more questions than answers uh, uh, about what the life would look like uh, after implementation of the agreement. Uh, the only precise thing there are about withdrawal of the Armenian army from the adjacent territories with three remaining adjacent territories that were still under the Armenian control at the moment of the ceasefire. And, and, and the rest is still, you know, it's going to be in making. Um, very few understand really, you know, how to, for example, regulate the life of the local ethnic Armenians um, in terms of... Uh, uh, for example, the water uh, in Stepanakert, it comes from Shushu, you know. So, I mean, there will be some some issues, daily issues, when, when you have to interact uh, with uh, the other side. Oh, there are ways how to do that. Of course, you can go and ask uh, the Russian peacekeepers to always kind of go and speak to Azerbaijanis, but eventually there will be a need for some certain conversations. And I don't know whether Baku will be ready for that, because, you know, unfortunately, right now, Baku's position is uh, bland uh, refusal to any kind of discussions of anything that resembles status issue. So will they be, for example, ready to have, um, like, once in a month, uh, a meeting uh, with those representing every ethnic Armenians living inside Nagorno-Karabakh, um, let's say, somewhere... At somewhere, you know, along with new line of contact, um, just to discuss with kind of, you know, with uh, daily issues, probably some incidents and how to respond to them. Also exchanging information about like what, what, what plans each of the sides has. And um, well, I'm afraid that those uh, I have spoken so far and they, I mean, the local residents who have, who had to flee during the war, um, they, with, uh, with uncertainty is the main thing that prevent them uh, from the return. There are some people who already went back, but there are also those who are still kind of, you know, prefer to see how the whole thing will, um, will operate, you know, and whether it will be secure for them to go back and to have their kids, you know, going to, to schools and uh, all of that. There are many with uh, small but very important issues uh, that are they are completely absent from the agreement. And uh, what worries me even more is that uh, there is very little kind of discussion about the need to set up certain rules. You know how the life on the ground will uh, what what the life on the ground will look like. And where do you think these conversations need to take place? It depends uh, on which conversation you mean. So, for example, um, the rules, uh, how, I mean, uh, as you said, uh, the, the water, uh, you know, for example, in Stepanakert, the water comes from Shush uh, Shushi. Um, currently, Azerbaijan has no road, road access to Shushi. Uh, so uh, these are all local issues that need to be uh, resolved. The electricity lines, telephone lines, communications, which... Uh, internet and cell phone service is going to be restored. Do you see a possibility of maybe working uh, working out these local, small, daily issues as a way of uh, 
building up some trust or some experience of interaction because after all I mean the last time these communities uh, worked or lived side by side uh, was uh, in 1991 and this is a, a major concern you know um, this is a, my my concern as well is that um, there is very little experience of living together, especially of the, with post-war generation, not to mention that this war was extremely brutal, just uh, to the extent that one um, cannot really imagine. I mean, for, for uh, people are extremely traumatized. This war between neighbors is being waged on the ground, in the air, and on YouTube. Video from Azerbaijan shows its forces blasting Armenian positions, while Armenia shows enemy soldiers getting shot at, trying to capture high ground. Armenia claims children are among its dead. My nine-year-old daughter was killed either by artillery or a bomb, says one man. Yeah, it will Legally be very difficult to rebuild any kind of trust. And what I, uh, what I mean, uh, and uh, this is something that uh, still, you know, I personally also kind of tend to discuss and uh, I am asking with questions to different diplomats and also to, um, to those who have been engaged in the uh, negotiation process for quite some time. I'm, I'm asking whether there is a possibility and where is, whether there is a space to set up certain, you know, um, system um, that will be in support uh, of uh, and, and that will, can help to find the way to resolve these issues without really going to, to the presidents and to, to the leaderships each time. I mean, you, of course, you can... <laughs> give calls to Moscow every time, for example, an incident happens. But I'm afraid that um, there are many other things, you know, on plate and on agenda in Moscow, <laughs> something that you have to regulate yourself. And there are there are the formats, you know, for that, like, for example, in different uh, conflict um, areas, they uh, tend to have uh, some some formats when, as I said, like, for example, uh, they come together once a month, you know, to discuss uh, the incidents and uh, and how to respond to them. They exchange plans. Uh, they also speak about the problems um, and uh, try and they are making attempts to resolve the issues. Um, I I don't see the space for for setting up uh, such formats for the moment. Um, but uh, I'm also and I also understand that the scope of problems of with everyday problems is going to increase with uh, the return of ethnic Armenians to their villages and to the to the main towns in Nagorno-Karabakh and also potentially with the return of ethnic Azerbaijanis uh, to all these places as well. So it's kind of something that you will not be able to escape. We are either to hear about Nagorno-Karabakh several times a week, you know, about some incidents, clashes, tensions on the ground, or they will have to find a way how to set up a certain mechanism that can help to resolve with everyday problems. My guest today is Olesia Vartanian. She's a senior analyst for the South Caucasus region with the Crisis Group. Her research focuses on regional security issues in Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. Now, Alicia, uh, you have looked at the deployment of Russian peacekeepers in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. 
What does this experience uh, tell us about what the Russian deployment in Nagorno-Karabakh might m- look like or mean for uh, the situation on the ground? Well, it depends on which peacekeepers you're talking about in Abkhazia and Sovacidia, because they used to have peacekeepers, but that was in the, in the 90s. Now, we are not peacekeepers, we are the Russian army. Yes, <laughs> uh, I'm talking about pre-2008 uh, situation. Um, well, when I look at the peacekeeping uh, setup uh, in uh, Abkhazia and Sovacidia before 2008, what I can tell you is that there is a huge difference to what we currently see in Nagorno-Karabakh. First, uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, mission of the Russian peacekeepers is uh, way more robust. It more looked like, looks like a real military presence, a, a, like a real kind of military compound that they, ha- they, they are creating on the ground. The second very fundamental uh, difference uh, is that so far we haven't seen any kind of discussion of having uh, um, an additional international component um, in, in attached to, to with peacekeeping mission. Uh, what I mean is that, for example, in Abkhazia, there was still the UN civilian monitoring mission that was kind of, you know, monitoring everyone. Uh, and also at the same time what the peacekeepers were doing. And I should say that we were not just Russian peacekeepers, actually, on, on paper, we were also kind of, you know, um, with countries, uh, with post-Soviet countries that were contributing to it. Um, and in Sovacidia, for example, again, that was also not pure Russian peacekeeper on the paper, but uh, what, what, what was happening there is that they had OEC monitors who were monitoring, you know, the conflict zones. So um, it's uh, it's a really very good thing to have uh, because uh, first it kind of provides an additional confidence to the sites uh, that if, for example, something goes wrong, uh, there will be an additional PROIs. The second thing, it brings an international engagement to with um, um, conflict zones, which in many cases they have uh, they stay isolated because of these differences, uh, political differences. Uh, and also diplomatic, some diplomatic problems. But in addition to that, some of the um, issues related to the international law. And uh, what what happens uh, also when you have the international presence on the ground, in addition to with mili- military peacekeeping, is that uh, actually they bring in uh, some aid, you know, and they take part also in some meetings. Um, like, for example, if they are eventually to have any kind of localized format of meetings uh, at, at the local level, um, it could be good to have not just kind of security and military people present there, right? I mean, it could be good also to have someone who, who can suggest uh, um, engagement with the outside world and some international institutions. And in the end, like, for example, in case of Abkhazia, there was a very, uh, there was a regular reporting to the UN Security Council about the situation in Georgia, even during the times when no one cared about uh, Georgia altogether. But still, the UN Security Council had to review, you know, situation on the ground and see what can be done. And, um, and there were interactions uh, between different uh, between different states uh, about the situation in this very small plot of land. Um, this is a really very good thing to do, uh, to have. And unfortunately, in the Nagorno-Karabakh context so far, there there have been 
we haven't heard or haven't seen uh, anyone discussing it. Um, the other difference also, what's really very important, and that worries me a lot, I should say, for example, in Abkhazia, when they uh, deployed peacekeepers and then the Unomic uh, was attached to it, um, there were buffer zones, you know, so the sites where they, there was uh, with um, zone agreed uh, by both sides uh, when that they would not use for any kind of, uh, you know, movement of military vehicles, for example, of certain, uh, certain arms. Uh, and, um, well, you know, in this particular case, no one is discussing it. And this is uh, something probably potentially to consider because if we are um, to still have a situation, like for example, in one of the Nagorno-Karabakh villages in Karmir-Shuka, um, the Azerbaijani military posts are right now located right on the mountains that, uh, and they are overlooking the village. Um, and that does not really add any kind of additional feeling of uh, of security. You know, people would still feel that uh, there can be potentially some tensions. You know, the um, or maybe shootings. It just could be really very good to start thinking about some ways how to create certain zones. But again, no one is really discussing it for the moment at the official level. Um, well, one can think about some other things where that were happening in the context of Abkhazia, South Ossetia. Maybe we can should also look at what's happening in Donbass because with Israel, uh, um, quite uh, it's uh, a fresh, <laughs> you know, conflict context uh, for us or even Transnistria. But uh, each of them, they have a certain arrangements on the ground, and uh, uh, so far we haven't seen them being discussed in the Nagorno-Karabakh context. Now, the, the document that was signed on November 9th, I, I, I believe it's just nine points, and, uh, you know, it mentions also uh, providing road access to, uh, uh, from western Azerbaijan to the exclave of Nakhchivan. It talks about uh, lifting the, the blockades that uh, existed since uh, uh, late 80s, early, uh, you know, even during the Soviet times. Um, what do you see as a potential? What needs to happen to flesh out this document? Because it's, uh, it's only nine points. It's very vague. And as you mentioned, mm -hmm. there are so many questions about it. Um, there are different ways how to handle that. I mean, that are accepted in the international kind of practice, you know, diplomatic practice. Like, for example, one can imagine uh, discussing uh, the document uh, at the UN Security Council and also seeing uh, um, what space can be there uh, right now or even potentially to kind of, you know, to set up certain arrangements on the ground. Not necessarily what I have been talking about, you know, there are different way, different types of things. So one has to kind of stay open-minded and think, you know, uh, about these things. Uh, but at the same time, look, I mean, with conflict, with war, how it happened, uh, it's, uh, I think it's, quite a big shock to many in this region that, uh, you know, it's basically, you know, was part of uh, the agreement uh, um, or it was rather a deal, you know, between Ankara and Moscow. So um, there is still this question in the air whether there is really a potential for um, 
kind of returning to um, to this uh, adopted way of managing conflicts even after the war, or we are actually going to see Turkey and Russia together with Azerbaijan and hopefully with Armenia inventing a new bicycle. Yeah, so I, I don't know honestly how it's going to develop and I don't have a magic, <laughs> magic I don't know, something ball in front of me to tell you about how it, it's going to be. How it's going to develop. You mentioned Turkey, and uh, I wanted to ask you about Turkey's role. I mean, it played uh, a direct role in the conflict on the side with Azerbaijan, but it's also trying to secure a role for itself in some kind of a peacekeeping operations in Nagorno Karabakh. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I have with uh, one big question uh, whether Turkey is actually wants to be seen as with international presence monitoring the situation on the ground and the peacekeepers itself. So what I was saying, like for example, in case of Abkhazia, which was a UN mission, and in case of Sawasidia, the OSA. So I have this question, you know, whether whether Turkish presence there, does it mean that it sees, it wants to be perceived as someone who is going to monitor everyone? I don't know. I, I don't have an uh, answer to that, and I haven't seen yet uh, even any kind of draft text of this uh, um, agreement uh, that was uh, apparently reportedly signed um, a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of uh, the the role for the OSC, I mean, these negotiations were shepherded by the OAC Minsk Group, uh, the role for the UN. Um, I mean, this is right now just a trilateral uh, declaration between Armenia, Azerbaijan, and uh, Russia. Uh, do you, what do you see the role of the OAC and the UN in, in trying to flesh out this agreement into something that uh, you know, uh, could withstand the test of the time? With so much uh, needed right now, and uh, I understand that uh, those uh, who on 10th of uh, November learned, similar to many of us, you know, about the agreement, they they also understand that uh, there is a need to find uh, the way to return the OEC means group uh, to the process. And I'm talking, uh, when I'm saying those who learned on 10th of November, I mean uh, France and the US, because apparently um, none of them were informed uh, about with, uh, with agreement um, beforehand. So it's um, it, with this kind of, you know, another thing that uh, we will have to see and watch what, how it's going to unfold. Um, I personally believe that there is a great need for uh, for their engagement, um, maybe they there will be some um, some reservations or concerns um, about the OEC direct involvement uh, in in the conflict zone itself. Uh, but uh, just kind of you know based on some political preferences or some political interest of the regional um, leaders. Um, but uh, I, I believe that first of all, what they have been have, and this is really very important, they have a, a huge experience and lots of documents uh, that were already agreed uh, by the sides in the past. 
and instead of inventing new bicycles every time, um, their work can be referenced and can be used uh, so that we actually start building on something instead of just just starting from the new page right now. Olesi Vartanian, thank you very much for uh, spending so much time with us. I really appreciate your input and your expertise on this. Thank you. You've been listening to episode one of the Nagorno-Karabakh Knot, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. Check out our other podcasts on rcinet.ca. You can also download them on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>